It is a blessing to be with you this Lord's Day. If you have your scriptures handy, I invite you to open to the Gospel of John. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Our sermon text today will be John 3, 22 to 36. Once upon a time, some friends and I were pretty serious foosball players. Any foosball players out here? Just me? Foosball, as you may or may not know, was a popular soccer-style table game back in the day. Most of my friends were much better at this game than I was. I think it's because they had stronger wrists and they probably had quicker reflexes. But one night, I had this uncanny streak of good luck. And while we were playing, I was able to score several times on a friend of mine who was on the opposing team. We were in a little tournament that we put together, and we were playing sort of two-on-two. And this other friend was normally a very skilled player, but he was having a bad night, and I was taking advantage of it, as were other players who were against him. And so as we were playing this tournament, you know, we had bragging rights on the line and it was very serious uh, tournament. Trash talking deserved a rated a rating of R uh, for redonkulous because it was stupid and silly the things we were saying. Well, as this friend of ours gave up several goals, finally his partner in this tournament looked at him and said, dude, what is wrong with you? And The friend turned to him and said, I got caught in the transition. And I don't know why we thought that was so hilarious, but we laughed him to scorn and never let him live it down. And from that night on, anytime something went wrong in our little circle of friends, anytime someone needed a handy excuse, they would just say, I got caught in the transition. Well, that's sort of how I feel about this sermon text today. I feel like we're caught in the transition. This is a transitional text in the Gospel of John because it marks the end of one thing and then the beginning of another. It marks the end of the ministry of John the Baptist, but it also marks the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So John the Baptist is here in this story as the last Old Testament prophet. But then Jesus is the Christ, the true and better prophet, priest, and king. Herman Ritterboss says in his commentary that John stands at the border of two worlds, two epochs. The old has run its course. The time of fulfillment has come in which the more the radiantly shining sun begins to shine, the more John's star will grow dim. So this text marks the end of one thing. And the start of another. Now also in this text, I want you to know that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is pulling together several threads from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he's going to tie them all up in Jesus. And so you might think of this text as a summary of all that we've seen over the past few weeks. Well, as I mentioned, our sermon text is John 3, 22 to 36. And if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. God's word says, 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word, and all the church says. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you are well aware, one of the most controversial matters in all of the Christian community is baptism. Most Christians agree that baptism was given to us by the Lord, but we differ over what baptism is, an ordinance or a sacrament, or who should be baptized, children of believers and new converts, or just new converts, when a person should be baptized, before they believe as infants and children, or after they believe as perhaps adolescents and adults. And how should they be baptized? Is it by dipping, pouring, or sprinkling? Well, I will not attempt to resolve all of these problems today. I just want you to know that baptism has always been a controversial matter among devout, God-fearing people, even in Jesus' day. So from his time forward, it's been like that. In this story, John the Baptist was baptizing at a place called Spring, near a place called Salvation, where there was much water. Jesus and his disciples were also baptizing in the Judean land, where there was not much water. But get this, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. And we're going to find out later in the story that Jesus himself did not actually perform any baptisms. His disciples administered the baptisms to the people. But oddly enough, John is baptizing where there is much water, but Jesus and his disciples are baptizing where there is much less water. And still he is baptizing many more disciples than John. 
Well, as a result of all of this, a theological discussion breaks out between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This is not the first time that Jews have sent representatives out to John and his disciples to ask about baptism. This is the second time we see this in the Gospel of John. We've already touched on this issue of purification rites when we looked at the story of the wedding in Cana. Remember how Jesus had, had all of the jars that were there for the water of purification? He had to fill those jars up and then He turned all of that water of purification into the wine of celebration. And so we touched on purification just a little bit. This dispute is probably related to the earlier one we saw where the priests and Pharisees asked John why he was baptizing if he was not the Christ. So they're still trying to make sense of what John is doing and what his disciples are doing. And now at the same time, there's this guy named Jesus and his disciples doing things that seem to sort of be like what John is doing, but sort of be different than what he's doing as well. And so imagine the, the tension in the air. Everyone at first was going down to the Jordan to get baptized by John. But now they're going out to the countryside to get baptized by Jesus. First, John is baptizing with water in order to reveal the Christ. But then he says that the Christ is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And now the Christ is baptizing with water and telling all of Israel that they need to be born of water and the Spirit from above. Do you feel a little bit dizzy now? Or are you like, what just happened here? That was, I felt dizzy just saying that. So what's happening is the religious establishment is feeling confused and concerned about all the waves of people leaving their camp and then going to these other two camps. And it looks like this particular Jew who wanted to talk about purification is trying to say to John and his disciples, hey, you see what happened to us? Now you know how we felt. All of you guys left us and now all those people are leaving you. They're going to this guy named Jesus. What's going on? Well, it's sad but true, but religious communities are not exempt from the spirit of competition. Everyone treats their denomination or their congregation as a team that is in competition with other teams. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's what, it, what happens, okay? Everyone likes to play the numbers game. So as numbers increase, it's easy to feel like your team is winning. When numbers decline, it's easy to feel like your team is losing, right? I had this experience as a minister that whenever I meet new people, the first thing, at least one of the first things they want to know is how big our church is. I've never in my life, ever in my life, been asked about how faithful, devout, humble, or loving you are. No one ever asks if you keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They just want to know where we're located and how big we are. A few months ago, I went to a presbytery meeting and a brother was taking me around and introducing me to different folks and it was very busy and loud and he was kind of feeling a little frustrated, I sensed, as he was trying to break into this group of guys. And at one point he said, Mark, 
is the pastor of a 1,500 member bilingual church that wants to come into the PCA. <laughs> and this tight-knit group of elders perked up and looked at me with great interest. And then, and then my hype man said, not really, I just wanted to get your attention. <laughs> Now, I don't want to go too far off the trail of our text here, but I do want to go far enough to say this, that God uses a different, a different metric system to measure wins and losses than we do. And it has nothing to do with numbers and noses. As we make our way through the Gospel of John, we are going to see that it just so happens that about every six chapters or so, Jesus will look around at the megachurch-sized crowds that have collected around Him, and He will say something about the cross that will scatter the crowds and dismantle this wannabe megachurch. Now, it seems so counterintuitive and counterproductive to most of us, but it shows us that Jesus, unlike most religious leaders, unlike most contemporary pastors, is not concerned about filling up empty spaces so much as He is concerned about the faithfulness of His followers. Now, I want to be careful here and make it clear that just because a church is small does not mean the church is faithful. And just because a church is large does not mean that it's unfaithful. I'm simply trying to get you to see that it's not about the numbers and we're not in competition with one another. Okay? And I also want you to see that there's more to faithfulness than the number of people sitting around you. So while the religious leaders in this story were busy crunching the numbers and counting noses, Jesus and His disciples were busy calling followers to count the cost and conform their life to the cross. Alright, let's get back on our, the trail of our text. In response to this baptismal controversy that broke out, John answers, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I was sent before him. So when John's disciples come and say, look, everyone's leaving us and they're going out to Jesus, John says, that's great. That's what I wanted them to do. He's not jealous of Jesus at all. John's attitude is much like some of his forefathers where he is basically saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has received good things from the Lord and now he believes that better things are coming for the Lord. Remember John was Jesus' hype man. He confessed, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the baptizer was doing in his ministry what all Christian preachers are called to do. And that is, he was not making a name for himself. He was making a name for Christ. He was pointing his hearers away from himself to Jesus by proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus. So John explains to his followers that as great as they might think he is, he wants them to know that Jesus is even greater. And he explains this by using what to our ears seems like a strange analogy. But I'm going to break it down for you here in a moment. 
He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, we've already touched on God's view of marriage in the story of the wedding at Cana. So I'm not going to go over all of that again here. But I simply want us to focus on this analogy of John as the best man and Jesus as the groom. Now, as I understand it, in their day, the friend of the bridegroom was like what we call the best man. Only his responsibilities were infinitely more uh, Great, they were greater than the responsibilities of our best man. Let me illustrate it like this. Several years ago, I was asked to stand as the best man at my friend Nick's wedding. He lives on Long Island in New York, and they had a typical Long Island wedding. You probably don't know what that is, just like I didn't. But it consists of a church service followed by an all-night banquet and dance party. I didn't know that going into it. Seconds before the wedding party started, we're about to go in. They're going to introduce the bride and the groom, and we're all in tow behind them. This man walks up and clips a mic on to my tux. I'm like, what, what are you doing? And he says, what do you mean? It's for the toast. Hey, Nikki, tell your friend about the toast. <laughs> my friend Nick, like, slowly turns around, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I say, what toast? I don't know anything about a toast. I've never given a toast. What is a toast? And so he kind of shrugs his shoulders, and he says, uh, it's kind of like an oops, I forgot to tell you kind of thing. And so I'm feeling pressure. We're staring at each other. Star Wars theme music is playing in the background. And, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, like my hand just spontaneously slaps him. Pow! Right on the face. He's like, hey, you slapped me. What'd you do that for? And I'm like, why didn't you tell me about the toast? And he's like, I did tell you about the toast. And I said, when did you tell me about the toast? And he says, when I said we were having a New York wedding, a Long Island wedding. I said, I'm from Texas. And he's like, all right, I forgot that part. And the door swung open and we went in. And I had to give a toast on the, off the cuff. Now, that was the extent of my responsibility as a best man. And I almost failed at that because I didn't know. But in Jesus' day, the responsibility of the best man was greater. It was like this. The best man was not in charge of throwing a bachelor party. He was not in charge of playing practical jokes on the, on the groom. He was not in charge of making silly toasts. He was charged with taking care of the virgin who was betrothed to marry the bridegroom. In other words, he was there to run interference to make sure all other suitors and all other guys stayed away from her and knew that she was spoken for. He was there to make sure that she had what she needed to get ready for the wedding. So he is the most trustworthy friend that a bridegroom can have. He's going to take care of the bride-to-be, not take advantage of the bride-to-be. Now, since we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as John's hearers were, the analogy of the bridegroom does not strike us with the same force that it struck his followers. 
They would have known right away when John said that he is the friend of the bridegroom, that he is referring to Jesus as the bridegroom. They would have heard right away that he is ascribing to Jesus all the attributes of Yahweh. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah the prophet. Uh, God spoke to the people through Isaiah the prophet and said, You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be determined desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, and so shall, shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And God spoke to His people through Hosea the prophet and said, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in my righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." So when John says, I am the friend of the bridegroom, he is simply echoing the prophets and declaring Jesus to be the fulfillment of all these promises. <coughs> Jesus is the bridegroom who comes to take a bride for himself from all the nations of the world. And he is going to pay the bride price by laying down his life for her. And then by taking it up again, he will kill the dragon and get the girl. John was so delighted to see the Christ that he went out leaping for joy and rejoicing in the Lord. This is the last time we are going to see or hear John the Baptist in this series. So I think it's only fitting that we take a moment to bid him farewell. John the Baptist is one of the most dispensable men in all of Scripture. He was like a mirror that reflected the light, but he was not the source of the light. He was like a burning and shining lamp in a dark world, but he was not the light of the world. He came only to bear witness about the light, and when he accomplished his task and fulfilled his mission, he was taken away. John was like the moon. Jesus was like the son of righteousness who rose up with healing in his wings. Just as the lesser light must give way to the greater light, so John has to fade away while Jesus continued to fill the world with his rays. John testified that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And when the true light of heaven came into the world, the light of earth went to heaven. Now, you've all heard the expression, famous last words. Almost everyone is fascinated with the last words of famous people, except apparently for Karl Marx. As Karl Marx was about to die, his housekeeper asked if he had any last words, to which he replied, Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. To which we might respond, and perhaps for fools who have said too much. Well, here are a few last words from some famous Johns y'all know. John Calvin's last words were, I am abundantly satisfied since it is from thy hand. 
And John Knox said, Live in Christ. Live in Christ and the flesh need not fear death. John Wesley proclaimed on his deathbed, The best of all is, God is with us. Farewell. Farewell. In John's Gospel, the last and final words of John the Baptist are as follows. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives his spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Think about it. The last thing John the Baptist wanted his hearers to know is that Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the God-man who descended to earth that we might ascend to heaven. Jesus is the teacher who proclaims the truth that we might no longer believe lies. He is the Savior who comes from, from above that we might be saved from all that is below. Jesus is the Word become flesh to get close to you and to get you close to God. He came down here because He loves you and He cares for you. We said it before, we'll say it again, that every religion in the world teaches what you must do to get up to God. What you must do to get life in the afterworld. What you must do to gain ultimate blessings and rewards. Every religion in the world requires you to work harder and to do better in order to reach your destination. Every religion, that is, except one. The Christian religion does not teach what you must do to get up to God. It proclaims what God did to get down to you. God came down here in the flesh to take you up there. God came here to give you the free gift of eternal life over there. Not on the basis of your works and efforts, but on the basis of His grace and power. Why? Because the world is in big trouble. Not just the physical world, but the people in the world. The serpent has struck everyone with sin. And death hangs over all unbelievers and keeps them oppressed and overwhelmed in such a manner that they cannot escape of their own accord. Apart from Jesus Christ, people like you and me and your friends and families and neighbors, your co-workers and strangers and enemies are all condemned under the wrath of God apart from Christ. But the Gospel says that Jesus hears your cries. He sees your pain. He knows your struggles. He loves you, not from a distance, but up close and personal. And that is why the Word became flesh and drew near to dwell among us, to help us. But here's the bottom line. John's last words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, believe in Jesus Christ, 
that you shall live, and the Lord your God will bless you. <coughs> but if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, then you shall surely perish. Now this commandment, believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is not too hard for you. It is not too far away for you. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend up into heaven for us and bring it down to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No, the word of flesh, the word made flesh, is very near you. He is in your mouth. He is in your heart so that you may believe Him. If you turn your back on life, where will you go but into death? And if you turn your back on life, where will you go but into darkness? If you turn your back on grace, where will you go but into wrath? If you turn your back on lies, on truth, where will you go but into lies? We urge you with all your heart as we proclaim these things to you, we say these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so we urge you today, believe on the Lord Jesus. Put your trust in Him now that you may live with Him forever and ever.